Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Holmline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you. It's always good to be with you. The first weekly update of the year 5777. How do you like that? Sounds good. Someone says to me yesterday, um, and I thought of this because uh, I was just reading online about the secular anniversary, so to speak, of the start of the Yom Kippur War, which was yesterday. And um, someone says to me, I say, well, I'm not really a Zionist. So I said to him in the course of conversation, if the state of Israel, God forbid, was abolished tomorrow or today, would you be upset? Would it affect you? Oh, I'd be devastated. So I guess I, so I said, I guess you're a Zionist then. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's a good time of year to remember as we, especially certain age groups, might take it for granted more than others. Uh, there have been many, many challenges uh, over the last uh, seven decades, many challenges to Israel's existence. And uh, as so many people, uh, and I believe you're going to be uh, one of them heading in the month of Tishrei to the Holy Land and enjoying the incredible sights and sounds of being in Israel, a, a, something that, our, that most of our predecessors, most of our ancestors not, not only couldn't have done but never would have dreamed that they could do. It's a good time to remember the sacrifice that so many have made to make sure that the Jewish people can get to this point. So excuse yeah. me for waxing poetic, but that's what I'm thinking of this time of year. Wax away. I think yeah. it's a very appropriate, and especially if you see the, you'll see headlines today. You'll see the, so the, some of the newspaper reporting yesterday, criticisms of Israel, of, and the the uh, the nature, the tenor of of those criticisms. You see the actions in the UN again of UNESCO looking now to to Kever Rachel and Maratamachvela to take away their Jewish names and traditional Judeo-Christian names even, and to to, as they did already in Jerusalem, uh, there are serious challenges. It has been a year of great accomplishment, I think, and we can look back and say that the you know Kaddish Baruch Hu, when he created the world, he stopped and said, Tov. God didn't need to compliment himself. He didn't have to say that he did a good job. He did it to remind us that sometimes we have to step back, look at all that what we have accomplished, what we have achieved, and not let people put us down and say, you know, we lost in Iran, you lost on this, or, or other things. The fact is that Israel is far less isolated today. There's no existential danger, per se, to Israel today. The, its neighbors are reaching out to it quietly and publicly. African countries, Asian countries, China, India, Japan, in uh, incredible numbers. And the the opportunities, I think, are, are very great. Unfortunately, I think the Middle East will continue to rumble and the volcano will continue to erupt for a long time to come. Syria, you see, is, is, uh, it's almost impossible to even visualize a solution, even temporary one, and the one they had uh, fell apart right away. Yeah. Well, I, I, do, I do have to uh, interject one thing as you discuss the uh, non-existence of danger to Israel's existential uh, uh, existence. Um, I think the only real danger might be from us, from within. Uh, that might be the only danger that we're facing right now. Uh, right. I was talking about external threats, but right. you're making a good point <laughs> good that point. that traditionally is where the greatest dangers to Jewish interests, to Israel's interests, to our collective interests yeah. come from sometimes loose lips and, and attacks and people not thinking 
about you know what their words do and how they can be manipulated and people who held positions of importance at one time and you know, all of a sudden remain experts even though they they may have a alternating uh, alternative interests that they are representing or involved with yeah. and um, you know that there were there are so many remarkable stories aside from the discoveries that we discuss most weeks now as as incredible things are being uncovered and and our whole past uh, being re- reminding us constantly of our responsibilities to the future that they found a safer torah in the building in a, a, city, a small town in portugal that was there since the inquisition and a few years ago somebody doing construction there found this and other documents I mean, it's a 30-foot-long Sefer Torah uh, and in good condition. And some this man took it home, treated it with great respect, had experts look at it, and they determined that this was a, uh, a Sefer Torah from the time of the Inquisition and hidden in a house that was actually right next door to a church in, in a village called Kailo, which was used by uh, conversos, Jewish converts. And uh, that church dates back to the 16th century. So you can see the connection. Uh, many Jews converted because they were uh, or forcibly converted by King um, Manuel I. And yeah, Jews who were Jews on the inside and non-Jews on the outside. And, you know, if caught, they were, of course, subjected to uh, prosecution and persecution by the uh, Inquisition courts, which functioned until 1770 in Portugal, from 1536 to 1770, so over 200, almost 240 years. Uh, people don't realize the expanse. We think of 1492, we think of what happened in Spain. It did then go to Portugal, and in some respects they were even tougher in the implementation of it. And uh, I'll tell you an interesting side note, that the man who was uh, designated this week as the new Secretary General of the United Nations, the Prime Minister of Portugal, Guterres, told me that he introduced the legislation in the Parliament of, of Portugal to rescind the Inquisition laws. Mm-hmm. Only now, only recently. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, people don't know that those laws remained on the books for another 200 years after the court's ostensibly stop functioning yeah what do you say better late than never or, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah well too little a lot, too a late. lot to be said about it and yeah and, but but you know it's interesting that that there are places and he told me of, of his own the place where he came from where many people identify as descendants of moranos or conversos and um uh, th- there is a, a movement underfoot i'm not it's not as widespread as you might think, but but a large number of people, South America, Portugal, Spain, will find that they have Jewish DNA in their uh, when when they examine it, and that has been the case in South America in many places. Uh, that people who escaped from the Inquisition went to Mexico, went to Argentina, Brazil, other countries. I also have to say that if we're recognizing people, I, I, I just make, want to make sure we get this in, that the former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, and the Archbishops weren't always known as great advocates of ours, but here you have uh, the former Archbishop, he's now called Lord Carey of Clifton, 
railed against a Methodist church in the place where he lived in in, a, in the London area about uh, having set up a checkpoint and depicting Israel in a really horrific way. And because of it, they had to put up another exhibition about Israel's justification for for the security fences and stuff and the the security needs and how what they're doing is consistent with their oblig- Israel's obligation to its citizens, protecting them, etc. And he note, noted, he said, with the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe and the excuse of using anti-Israel um, propaganda and, and charges to exacerbate it, that it was imperative that they that they step down from this and that, that he was so highly and publicly critical uh, of this. And the Methodist Church has generally been problematic here as well yeah. as there. Yeah. And you know, and it's the week that they marked this, we marked the 75th anniversary of the massacre at Babi Yar, where mm-hmm. 34,000 Jews were killed in 48 hours, I think, in 1941 by SS troops and local collaborators. It's, uh, it's interesting to see or to note the resurgence of the kind of hatred and, and fomenting of incitement for, uh, that we saw in those days and in earlier periods, uh, back to the Inquisition and further. Oh, excellent point. A um, couple of things that happened this week um, that were prominent in the news. One of them was the vice presidential debate here in this country. And one of the things that keeps coming up is Israel's attitude toward the Iran deal, with each side trying to depict Israel as either more pro than people think or more against than people think. What do, what do you think of that whole discussion? And, and you know, to us, I would think that it's pretty clear what Israel's attitude has been. Is there this massive split in Israeli military personnel, especially administrative personnel, uh, in terms of whether the Iran deal was a good thing or not? No, there isn't. And uh, and. You're raising an important question, and it's a reminder again that wise people are careful with their words, that generals should be careful, political leaders have to be careful, that things they say can be taken out of context if you're not very careful to create the framework, and it it doesn't mean that it's deliberate, and we know that the media distorts all the time, especially when it comes to Israel. But what they said was that the, the deal did set back the nuclear pro- weapons program right. didn't do away with it. Delayed it didn't it. stop it. It didn't. And and there are many who have been very critical because, uh, as we find out more and more, and including this week, finding out about more aspects of the secret deals and that they lifted the sanctions against the um, against the bank that uh, that had been sanctioned for its support of of the ballistic missile program and. Secretly, on the same time when the deals were made to 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 give the 1.7 billion dollars and to drop charges against 21 Iranian operatives, uh, several of whom were in jail, uh, and and to to release them, the um, and and Congress was told that if they approved the deal, the sanctions would remain until 2023, which is when the sanctions on on um, missiles altogether is, is to be lifted, uh, an all-too-short period in and of itself. But they were told that the ballistic missile sanctions would be maintained and and uh, more strengthened if the deal was allowed to go through. The SEPA bank sanctions uh, meant that the whole system designed to check Iran's ability to finance 
nuclear-capable missiles uh, was in, in, interrupted was or ended. And the Treasury described SEP as the financial linchpin of Iran's missile pro- procurement program. And we had many discussions with people at Treasury about it, and they assured us over the years. And they did great efforts to... Um, to implement the sanctions, which were picked up by the Europeans and others, I don't know that any of our allies had been informed or were informed about these concessions. The JCPOA partners, uh, the permanent members of the Security Council, I was just going to mention you're including the UN in that, right? And and the uh, and and in fact, a member of the Iranian military outlined all the terms last February. He said that they got the money. There were 21 operatives, the SEPA concession, and it, it was described both in English and in, in Persians. And when they went to the administration of those, they were given different explanations and sort of dismissed it. Well, now we're finding out about the natures and of all the deals, the concessions that were made to get the release of the hostages, to get the deal, whatever. These are, are setting a bad, bad precedent, and the wrong message in Khamenei's response this week, not to this specific charge, but overall, he, he declared a determination that only fear of Iran's raw power uh, will uh, instill fear in the hearts of right. his enemies and said there are some foolish people who seek a dialogue with the United States. It's not going to happen. He, of course, has various uh, pseudonyms for the U.S. that are, are very um, negative. All right, so I'm going to be careful how I say this, but essentially, back to the original question, and one of the vice presidential nominees this week mischaracterized Israel's attitude toward the Iran deal. Would that be the right way to put it? Yes, I think that that... I don't want to be too correct. harsh, because you wouldn't, <laughs> you, you well, wouldn't agree you know, if I was too harsh. semantics and in debates, people say things, but, right. but the, the, the point is a very important one, because... To say that the Iran the, the the deal ended the nuclear program, it postponed the nuclear program, and the fact that they can do more centrifuges, that they'll have advanced their missile delivery system, they will advance their technology in the interim means when they, the sanctions are lifted, complete sanctions are lifted or limitations. Um, and again, there are plenty of things that we don't know about what they're doing, but that that they will be able to enrich much faster and get to a nuclear weapon much faster in eight years or nine years in in a lifetime of of all these affairs is is a blink of the eye. It it is not a significant amount of time. Uh, And Iran, in the meantime, is not sitting on its hands. We know their activities and expanding their uh, instigation of terrorism around the world, and especially in the region, their more support for Hezbollah, uh, more for Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza and other groups that uh, they want the more extreme, the more they will support them. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM Dial Broadcasting Live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org, and of course on the NSN app. Make sure you have the app and make sure you have all of the platforms or any of the platforms that are uh, that apply to you um, at, at hand so that uh, when we make our big transition at the beginning of December, you are completely prepared for that. We'll speak more about that once the holiday season 
draws to a close. Uh, the election cycle, according to the New York Times writers, the election cycle here in the United States has offered the Kremlin a unique opportunity. Russia is using the waning days of the Obama administration to strengthen al-Assad's hold on power, that's in Syria, of course, expand the territory he controls in Syria, and constrain the options of the next American president in responding to the civil war, according to a number of American officials and Russian analysts. Do you think this is bad timing, that if we were not in the midst of uh, one month away from Election Day, uh, Russia would be handling things differently? I don't think necessarily that the things would be much different. I think that they're taking advantage of what they perceive to be a Western withdrawal from the region is certainly perceived by the leaders in the in the area. And during the UN week, uh, ten days ago or so, uh, we heard it repeatedly: African leaders, uh, Middle East leaders, Arabs, Muslims, others, Central Asians, uh, bewailed and bemoaned the fact that the West is absent and uh, Putin steps into this breach. They had re- they they reached some sort of an accord supposedly on 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 Syria, but it was I don't think it was ever going to work and the the uh, it, it collapsed uh, very quickly so the idea that uh, because he thinks america is preoccupied that doesn't stop presidents from acting and in fact i'm more concerned about what may happen after the election until the end of the year right. by the administration and we see the the language that has been used uh, over the last couple of days which may many people interpret as setting the stage i don't think a decision has been made yet but setting the stage for a possible UN resolution on settlements or a failure to, or lack of a veto against such a resolution, uh, or maybe even introducing it or something else of that kind, which would I think be obviously very detrimental. It's a you know the controversy this week is a serious one, and and um, it is not because of the election or no election. Yeah. Uh, but you make you make such an interesting point there. Everyone's focused on the advantage that Putin might be taking now before the election. You're raising how concerned people should be about what happens right after the election. Um, That's right. Something to consider, I guess. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the Obama administration and the State Department are very upset. The State Department has strongly condemned the move where Israel has approved plans to create a brand new Jewish settlement on the West Bank. Uh, the new one uh, is designed to house settlers from a nearby illegal outpost, Amona, which an Israeli court has ordered demolished. The timing of the approval especially infuriated the White House because it came after Obama met with Prime Minister Netanyahu at the United Nations. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu, they said, gave the president no advance warning, even though Mr. Obama expressed deep concerns about Israel's continuing settlement construction. I'm reading from the New York Times article. All right, so first of all, uh, is it a violation? I mean, is it a violation or not? Tell us that first and foremost. It's a, certainly a violation. It appears to be a violation of what they thought was an understanding that no announcements would be made at this period, and the president was particularly sensitive about it because he was there. He came for the Paris funeral. Could have leaked then, that which would have been put the Biden leak into. Yeah, you know, it would have made it the minor, <laughs> in the minor <laughs> leak. It would have made it made it made <laughs> like a drip. <laughs> but and also, I mean, there are certain facts first. One, the. the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the government of Israel, put out statements saying this is not a new settlement, this is within the, the boundaries of Shiloh, that it is a new area that is being settled. That is, that is true, and the United States doesn't want to see any construction in these areas, which they say impedes, you know, potential Palestinian state. And here you have a, a Supreme Court order about, you know, providing alternative housing, I guess, for Amona and the destruction of it. 
uh, and they decided to 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 do this. And you know, the way things work in Israel, it well could have been leaked by some mm-hmm. or somebody, you know, bureaucrat as has happened with the um, with the Biden experience. Right. And and right now, I think these are tensions we don't need when when there are really such serious issues and. You saw how the administration raised the MOU, the Memorandum of Understanding on the Military Aid, which yep. I think is an unfortunate thing to do. I think it's a separate issue and should be kept separate. But, you know, everything gets linked now, and there's increasing pressure coming from Europeans and others all along about doing something, and it's certainly about saying something and putting down markers. And, you know, the the president indicated this when we met a year ago that uh, that i think he, he said he knew it wasn't going to get a palestinian state but would but would create the predicates and i think that's what we're seeing happening i wonder how the next administration will deal with the quote unquote violations when israel decides to announce new building i'm trying i'm trying to think back to the bush administration they they also reacted in a negative fashion just not as harshly correct they did, and you know they get reaction from some of the Arab countries who, by and large, don't care about these issues. But because they get reaction from the street, because they want to prove their bona fides, they, you know, all criticize Israel for it, and it, it, it makes it uh, tougher in, in, in their relationships in the region. There's no doubt, but uh, the the, um, the administrations have all along sustained uh, similar positions yeah. about settlements, but the language, I think, lately has been particularly harsh, uh, although the president, in his speech, uh, while he made some uh, frequent references to the uh, Palestinians and the, their issues, he also gave a, quite a, a Zionist endorsement, too, and talked about me in Israel, and then when the pr- press release comes out, it, it came out from Jerusalem, Israel, and they put out another press release where Israel then is crossed off. But right. you have it there with a line through it, which is just, I mean, had they just put it out without saying where it wasn't just, if that was the correction that they felt necessary, but to send it out with a line through Israel is really, a, 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 you know, a, a step way too far. Right. And I, I has aroused a lot of, uh, a lot of concern, a lot of reactions. Uh, I, again, I think it was just done by somebody in the in uh, some cog in, in the machine. I don't think that that came from the top, but I do think that the comments that we're hearing and the language of, of some of the statements from state and White House spokesmen are coming with the president or, or top officials at least endorsement. They are very angry. They, uh, um, you know, they they feel that this was uh, coming right after the visit and. They say that there was some understanding that it would be that everybody would be quiet until after the Yom Tovim, at least, to let things settle down and see what, what uh, could be done. Even in international relationships, it's Achari Achagim. Huh? <laughs> Everything is Achari Achagim. It's unbelievable. It's absolutely um, right. The, but, uh, uh, we're seeing other developments which should be getting people's attention and doesn't. You know, the, the ISIS losing territory means... And, and the Sunnis are very concerned about the Sunni states because now that removes the block of Iran, giving it contiguity to its allies in Persia, in them, Syria and and Lebanon. So Persia, Iran gets past ISIS, which is now the block, 
and hooks up, and you have a direct land corridor from Tehran to Beirut. And the the um, so ISIS was actually doing the free world a favor by being there. In, in that sense, that they were uh, blocking. That's unbelievable. Uh, that and and you don't see much of it. You know that Iraq expelled the Saudi ambassador last week because he criticized the Shiite militias and their behavior. And I, I did not see uh, mention of it. And even now, the Russians putting the S-300 air defense system at their naval base in Tartus. And, you know, they have the S-400, the most advanced system they have, and it's a very deadly system, in place at Latakia Air Base. So the question is, what are they afraid of? Who, who else is going to bomb? They're the ones controlling the air and, and the bombing raids. The United States, others are, are involved, but nobody's going after their interests or one is, will, will be bombing them. So the question is, why do they put in such the most sophisticated systems <coughs> into Syria? Now, it's perhaps to show the world and try to sell more of them, but it's a, it's a development that I think has to be examined very carefully uh, about what what this uh, what this really means, and we've seen three thousand Iranian-backed uh, Shiite militias moving into the Aleppo area with heavy air cover bombardment by the Russians and and the Syrian army. Well, um, American ground forces continue to make progress in Iraq against uh, ISIS. Correct? They do. So I, I, I would the Iraqis backed by American troops. Right. So I would think. Like, I would think that Russia is you know just trying to flex its muscles to make sure people realize they're still in the area. They don't have to. I think he has cleverly maneuvered it with with a far less involvement than us, and having made ten times what he's spent in new arms sales. And again, he does not have a lot of money. He's sitting on a very poor economy, a very small economy, without oil the size of I think of Holland. And uh, I think that this is this is a shrewd leader who is manipulating the situation, and then. As I think I mentioned, the the picture of him with Rouhani of Iran and President Aliyev announcing a building of a railroad from the center of Russia through Azerbaijan, uh, which is very much afraid of Iran and, and of the Russia. But as the, the president himself said, he was being driven into the arms of, of, of Putin because the American-backed uh, broadcast attack him, and he said America attacks him all the time. And he's trying to be pro-West and, and introducing reforms in a, in a slow way. Um, and the, so now, this is an age-old dream of the czars to have a warm-water port, and you would have a railroad going through the three countries. It's just one further development. And, and while it may not seem significant to me, it's an extremely significant uh, shift. But more importantly, shows you the progress Russia is making, breaking out and into the region, taking advantage of the vacuum. And I heard it from African leaders. We heard it from Arab leaders all the time. You know, I don't know if uh, either presidential candidate could address this issue the way you just did, frankly. I don't know if they're as... Uh, as well, they should be on time, because this is, this is something that will have very long-term consequences. Oh, no question about that. I just don't know how educated they are on it. Um... Second debate is coming up soon, so you know it's starting to get serious. And assume we actually have to go to the polls and elect one of these people. So, and I, I assume that foreign policy will play a bigger role in at least in this or the next debate. But every time we've said that over that. the last year, it never seems to seep into the conversation. <laughs> it just never, it never, well, it never becomes the high profile item. They get into debates over you know uh, who's responsible for certain things that happen.
Yeah. Right, to assess what's really going on. Right. And, I mean, what we talked about now are just a few of, of the developments in the last 48 hours, 72 hours, that, um, uh, you know, Israel has been moving in, in c- capturing uh, Hezbollah support groups inside Israel. We see that they're trying to disrupt in in uh, within Israel and to and in the in the territories against the PA against Israel, the the, um, uh, the, the these attacks. There was a, a group arrested in East Jerusalem uh, this week as well. So there are many things. There are, are are all sorts of levels that are moving at the same time, and. It's I, as you know, I don't discuss the presidential races because it has obscured and obfuscated. It's very important who gets elected as president. I think it's equally important who gets elected to Congress. But the issues are not being discussed. People are not focused on them and not, you know, taking seriously enough these developments because we're going to look back then after the election's over and ask, how did all of this happen? Yeah. Uh, last Friday, uh, Mahmoud Abbas was in Jerusalem for the Paris funeral. Uh, we know that he had heart surgery this week. Is it possible that that has happened in Jerusalem as well? I don't know, actually, whether... Uh, I know he was sick, and he, I, I saw him at the funeral. Um, he, he, I was sitting on the other side. Uh, and uh, so he came under very heavy criticism from the Arab world and within the Palestinian Authority itself, but really heavy criticism for attending it and for shaking hands with uh, Netanyahu, and it was pictured, and for saying some nice things about uh, about uh, Shimon Peres. If I can tell you one thing, though, that that because the media got it, and not for me, um, about my discussion with Prince Charles, which was shown on television when he came in, and I, I was talking to him, and he had his blue yarmulke with the royal crest on it, which was very interesting. Uh, and he was very affable, and uh, I started telling him about the Harazetim, about the temp- the um, uh, Mount of Olives and the, the graveyard there and its significance and the progress that has been made by the International Committee, and because uh, his grandmother is buried there. Wow. His father's mother is buried there in, in a church courtyard, uh, cemetery on the Mount of Olives. Under British rule at that time, I assume. And... And she, right, and they're not allowed to visit because it's East Jerusalem, so they don't go there. Right. And he said, and I described the changes, and he asked if it was safe, and I told him the cameras, the police, etc. And he turned to his aide and he said, "I want to go and see that wonderful place." He said, "Can I see it from here?" I said, to him, "No, you can't see it from here, but it's not that far away." And to make a long story short, he went there and he visited the grave and he brought flowers and he and he spoke about it. Uh, very effusively, and uh, I'm, I'm sure it gave a lot of guys in the, in the British Foreign Service uh, a good adjective for, <laughs> for, <laughs> for the day, which is worth it. But I, I want to say this Prince Alice uh, um, was also uh, given an award by Yad Vashem as one of the righteous Gentiles, uh, because during the Holocaust she saved the Cohen family, who were acquaintances of uh, her family. Uh, she lived in Athens. Um, and um, uh, Prince Alice of, of Battenberg, as she's known, um, uh, took this family in. It was a woman, a Jewish woman, and two of her children. And they stayed there for 13 months in her Athens palace 
until the the Nazis withdrew in October of 1944. Unbelievable. And so she was recognized for that. Pretty remarkable. Now we know why he visited his uh, grandmother's grave. Now you know the inside story. Now we know the the rest rest of the story, story, as the great (laughs) Paul Harvey would say. And a reminder that everybody can make a difference, right? One small gesture, Malcolm, and a very significant story emerges from it. And we know what the Lubinsky brothers and others who who led this effort to getting the shaking up the Israeli political establishment. And I was privileged to to be a partner with them in some of their this effort to to get the progress we have. And it is tremendous. I mean, thousands of people go there, and I hope that during Sukkot people will go. Uh, even government officials whose parents and grandparents were buried there never went. And now, thank God, people can go. We still have much more to do, and hopefully we can build a visitor center, other things that will enhance the area, make it even more safe. Uh, but it's a lot of progress uh, after decades of, of neglect. Yeah, no question about that. All right, finally, the flotilla. What could you tell us about this week's flotilla on its way to Gaza? The women's flotilla. Yeah, it's again, uh, it's a grandstand, and and it's even more ridiculous than the last time because Turkey reached an agreement with Israel whereby they're sending goods into Gaza. Israel continues to send eight hundred to a thousand trucks a day into Gaza with with goods. The the there is absolutely no justification for it, and as you know, the the raid on uh, Mavi Mamara, despite the fact that Israel apologized for the loss of life, but the action itself was ruled to be completely le- was legal. I mean, and Israel has the right to to uh, set up an embargo because of the hostile nature and the, the terrorist entity Gaza, uh, and so it, it is a PR stunt. It's one of many. It's what the whole BDS. Uh, movement is about, which is not to benefit the Palestinians. It doesn't help any Palestinian. It uh, doesn't improve the situation in the region. It's a provocative act. It's meant to to, to demonize Israel and diminish Israel and ultimately to destroy Israel. Yeah. That's why they carry out these campaigns to, to take away the, the names of the traditional historic names of, of our holy places, because everything cuts our connection Everything denigrates the nature of a Jewish state and and the rights of others, by the way, including Christians, and the and as they are doing it in their own countries, denying the rights of of uh, minority groups and, and and religions. That that this to be taken much more seriously for for what it really is in the BDS movement that we've seen already in, on campuses in the United States being active and. I'm afraid we'll move towards more violence because they're getting frustrated at their inability to impact economically, that they will turn to to much more extreme activities. And university administrations, communities, everyone has to make sure there's no Jewish student and no pro-Israel student that should feel intimidated from speaking out, that on campuses here in New York City, we're seeing checkpoints set up and other terrible activities and pro-Israel speakers being shouted down. We have to make sure this stops. It cannot be tolerated. And it just, it's a cancer that metastasizes more and more. 
and we will find ourselves facing challenges like those in Europe. Hey, we're off to a great start. Great weekly update. Um, the uh, A great start for the brand new year. Uh, next week, Malcolm God is, is God willing in Israel for the Shabbos between Yom Kippur and Sukkot. And uh, hopefully, if his schedule works out regarding his Friday afternoon meetings, he will join us regular time for the weekly update. Gemara Chasimatova, happy, healthy, and sweet new year to you, Mr. Homeline. To you, Mr. Siegel, and to all the listeners. And in your new launch, will be very successful, God willing. And reach more and more people with the important uh, the th- service that you provide throughout the week, but especially on Friday morning. <laughs> I appreciate that <laughs> very, very much. Right right back you at are. you. Uh, have a wonderful Shabbos.